Hey leader, and welcome to another episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast, where we are obsessed with helping you grow to your maximum potential and to maximize the impact of your leadership. My name is Doug Smith, and I am your host, and today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Baritung Advisors. We also recorded this episode live from the new Return.com studio. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you'll enjoy our content and become a subscriber. Know that you can also watch all of our episodes over on our YouTube channel, so make sure you're subscribed there as well. And as always, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and it's impacted your life, it would mean the world to me if you would leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever app you listen to podcasts through. That really does help us to grow our audience and reach more leaders. So thank you in advance for that. Well, Leader, in today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Joe Mall. If you're unfamiliar with Joe, let me just tell you a little bit about him. Joe has spent thousands of hours shaping managers into strong leaders with his decades of experience, his compelling content, and dynamic delivery. In demand as a speaker and trainer, Joe has attracted audiences of all sizes from all sectors from all over North America. Prior to launching his own firm, John was the head of learning and development for a top 10 U.S. healthcare organization where he managed training for more than 9,000 employees at over 500 locations. Joe's written three books, Cure for the Common Leader, No More Team Drama, and his most recent, Employalty, which is the focus of our conversation today. And you'll hear Joe talk all about a leader's role in creating great workplaces and attracting, training, and retaining world-class employees in today's job market, which I can't think of a more relevant topic for leaders right now. I think you're going to get a ton out of this. But before we dive in, just a few announcements. This episode of the L3 Leadership Podcast is sponsored by Baratung Advisors. The financial advisors at Baratung Advisors help educate and empower clients to make informed financial decisions. You can find out how Baratung Advisors can help you develop a customized financial plan for your financial future by visiting their website at baratungadvisors.com. That's B-E-R-A-T-U-N-G advisors.com. Securities and investment products and services offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC, Baritung Advisors, LPL Financial, and L3 Leadership are separate entities. I also want to thank our sponsor, Henny Jewelers. They're a jeweler owned by my friend and mentor, John Henny. And my wife, Laura, and I got our engagement and wedding rings through Henny Jewelers and had an incredible experience. And not only do they have great jewelry, but they also invest in people. In fact, for every couple that comes in engaged, they give them a book to help them prepare for marriage. And we just love that. So if you're in need of a good jeweler, check out hennyjewelers.com. And I also want to thank our new sponsor, Return.com. And Leader, let me just ask you this. Have you ever had an interest in investing in real estate? Well, now for as little as $500, you can become a commercial real estate investor. Just visit Return.com to learn more. That's R-E-I-T-U-R-N.com. Investing involves risk. Please consult the Return Offering Circular if you're interested in investing. And with all that being said, let's dive right in. Here's my conversation with Joe Mall. Well, hey, Jay, Joe Mall, welcome to the L3 Leadership Podcast. It's an honor to have you here. And why don't we just start up with you just giving us a little bit about your background and what you do. Well, thanks for having me, Doug. I'm super excited to be here with you. I know that our conversation today is going to be a lot of fun because I think we're passionate about a lot of the same things. Um, I am 46 years old and, you know, I've spent the better part of the last 20 years teaching leaders how to be better bosses and how to create the conditions at work for people to thrive. Um, I was previously the head of learning and development for a large healthcare system. And then about 10 years ago, went out on my own and built a, a boutique training and development firm. And and most of my work now is, a, is about speaking and, and writing and training. And uh, I'm one of those people that sort of nerds out around the social science research for what makes people tick at work and how do you get people to care and, and what role do leaders play in that? 
Oh, yeah. Well, this is obviously always an important topic, but I think in a post-COVID world, you know, you had the great resignation. I'm being told that it's been followed by the great regret. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We have leaders everywhere who have lost uh, great people. They're trying to rebuild their teams. They're trying to figure out flexibility in the workplace. Do we do remote? And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, And just to to tee it up, you recently wrote a book. You've wrote several, which I want to dive into, but your most recent book is called Employalty. And, uh, And why don't you kind of just set the stage of why you wrote this and what you want leaders to get out of it before we dive into the specifics? Sure. Well, uh, I ended up writing Employalty because I was getting frustrated by the national conversation that was taking place around the Great Resignation, that it was triggered by COVID, that uh, it's all about money. Neither of those things are true. Um, We know, for example, that what we're calling the Great Resignation actually started in 2010, and that every year since 2010, the number of people who voluntarily changed jobs has increased. Uh, We also know that it's being driven uh, not by work ethic, right? The issue isn't that nobody wants to work anymore and people just got lazier. Uh, It's being driven by people pursuing quality of life after years of being overworked and underpaid and burned out. And so when I decided to write this book, it was really about helping business owners and leaders understand what they need to get right in order for people to join an organization, stay long-term, and then give it all they've got to, to do great work. And so uh, employalty, the word, you know, we're playing a little trick on the reader. You hear the word and you think it means employee loyalty, but the definition of employalty, it's a portmanteau of the words employer loyalty and humanity. We know that when employers create a more humane employee experience, that's actually what activates commitment at work. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about what you found in the book. What are people looking for? And, you know, leadership podcast, you're speaking to leaders who are constantly thinking this through. What can we do to, to actually r- attract, recruit, uh, retain all the above quality employees? Yeah. So we analyzed more than 200 research studies and articles on why people quit a job, uh, what attracts them to take a new job, or why they stay long-term in an organization. And we focused quite heavily on a a lot of this research since COVID has arrived on our shores. And we can say with conviction that it becomes much easier to find and keep people at work if you're winning in three specific areas of the employee experience. We call them ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. Now, there are dimensions to each of these, and I'm going to rattle them off. So ideal job is really about compensation, workload, and flexibility. If my money is right, if my workload is manageable, and I get a little bit of flexibility around when, where, and how I work, that job fits into my life like a puzzle piece snapping into place. It becomes an ideal job. Meaningful work is about purpose, strengths, and belonging. If I believe my work matters, if it aligns with my talents and gifts, and I'm a part of a team where I'm accepted and celebrated, I want to do great work. That work becomes meaningful. And then that great boss factor has three dimensions to it, trust, coaching, and advocacy. If my direct supervisor grants trust and earns trust, if he or she coaches me regularly, and then they act as an advocate for me, they act in my best interests, I've got a great boss. And when those three factors hit, you check all of these boxes on this kind of internal psychological scorecard that people have that leads them to want to be a part of an organization. Wow. Uh, So I want to dive into each of those a little bit. Yeah. Uh, On the ideal job, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned flexibility and workload. Um, 
in what you're seeing through the research and, and talking with leaders, what are you seeing? What kind of workplaces uh, do we need to create in order to attract and actually retain talent? Do we need to provide, you know, unlimited vacation? Do we mm. need to do four day work weeks? Do we need to let everyone work from home remotely all the time? What are you seeing that's working? What's working is when you improve people's quality of life. And, you know, it's going to be different from person to person. So I'm 46 years old. When I was 26 years old, what I cared most about was growing my financial compensation, right? I had a ton of college debt and I was trying to buy a house and do all those things that you do in your 20s. But that's not, those aren't the things that are, are as important to me anymore. At 46, what's important to me is, hey, there are two days a week when I need to be at home to get my young kids off the bus because of my wife's work schedule. So some flexibility is more important to me. So where we see organizations finding success is where they're creating a host of innovations around quality of life enhancements. And yes, in some places, that's four-day work weeks. And yes, that's flexible work policies, remote work policies, better compensation, uh, increased benefits. Uh, vacation is absolutely a part of this because we know that uh, our workloads have exploded in recent years. Uh, across the board, though, and when you talk to folks about why are you interested in changing jobs or why did you leave that organization? The answers that come out, they all sound different, Doug. People will say, I left because I need better pay or a less toxic work environment or more opportunities for growth or a better schedule or a better commute. But all of those ideas actually roll up to one bigger idea, which is improved quality of life. Hmm. You talked about the seasons of life. I think this is so interesting. Uh, from my understanding, we're, we're in the first time in history where we have five generations mm -hmm. uh, in the workplace. And you know, as you were alluding to, every one of those generations have different needs and the seasons that they're in. I'm in a similar season. You I have four kids under seven. Yeah. They, I mean, it's insanity. Um, yeah, we're, I have I, three. I have three. We're both tired a lot. That's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. But can you talk about fairness? Because it's like the flexibility mm. that I need in my stage. You know, when I, Same thing you said. When I was in my 20s, I had no problem putting in 10, 12 hour days, going all in. I can't do that in this current season. And, yeah. you know, sadly, one day my kids will grow up and, and go out of the house and I'll have all the time I need to be able to go all in with work again or whatever I choose to do. Talk, how do you communicate fairness in the workplace or at least communicate? I, I guess you have to provide different flexibility for different seasons. And, and how do you communicate that so the whole workplace feels like everyone's kind of on the same team, rowing in the same direction and, and has the same flexibility? Yeah, it reminds me of this very interesting conversation that was taking place uh, at a couple of the big tech companies during the, the first year of COVID in 2020, where uh, a lot of employees were getting who had kids at home because they couldn't attend school in person anymore. Non-parents were feeling like that, that we were catering to the parents and really being flexible for them. But then for employees who didn't have kids, we heard bosses saying, yeah, but you don't have kids. So like, what's the big deal? We need you to, to show up differently. And so it is a fairness question in the way that you talk about there. What we do know, though, is that for most people in the workplace, we, from an HR perspective, we have an obligation to give everyone access to the same set of benefits and opportunities, right, across the board. So if you're offering a four-day work week, you're offering a certain kind of schedule or flexible work option, you really do need to offer it to everybody, regardless of their station or status in life. At the same time, though, we know, for example, research tells us clearly that job crafting, where you actually tailor certain aspects of a person's positions to their strengths and to their schedule, 
enhances commitment. You can still do those kinds of things at an individual level while still being equitable around certain kinds of benefits and policies and procedures. So I guess that's the way, the way in, in which I would differentiate it. It would be what are the, the, the opportunities and options that are offered to everybody versus how am I engineering a position that really uh, allows for the unique skills and gifts of the person in that position to be leveraged and to be utilized? Yeah. Uh, also, under the umbrella of flexibility, you have remote work coming back to the office. So, <laughs> right, this is the big debate now. From from what I'm seeing, large organizations are now bringing everyone mm-hmm. back into the office. Um, what are you saying? Because the question I think is, can you develop the kind of culture that you want within your organization with everyone working remote full time? Or do people actually need to be in person? Is it more of a trust issue around performance? Um, and what, what do you suggest for leaders just out of your experience? Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on around the work from home and the return to work uh, question right now, right? Um, so a couple of things. First, I'm very much a centrist on remote work, if that's a thing. Um, we have proven that there are a whole host of roles that can be done well from home most of the time. We also know there are some things that you get by gathering and working together in person that you can't duplicate. Creativity, innovation, camaraderie, et cetera. All of these go a long way to work culture, to how we serve clients. And so it's not out of bounds for an employer to want people to gather so that they can get those benefits. What I think is important in this day and age is that employees and leaders are co-creating their work from home policies together. I think employers need to have an eye on creating policies that do not lower quality of life for people. So um, I have a couple of friends who were just posting online about this this week, about how after two years, their employer has moved their office building into a downtown setting and are mandating that their employees now come back full time and they're posting. I'm my costs for commuting just went up, parking, gas. I'm going to spend an hour in the car each way every day. This is an absolute disruption that I'm not going to tolerate. And, you know, when you enact policies that lower people's quality of life, you create a flight risk. And so really it's about that dialogue together. What I challenge employers to think about is that most of the time work from home policies are really about trust. You know, in this day and age, we're seeing so many employers who are trying to create really complex monitoring systems and check-in processes because they believe that if, if left to their own devices, employees working from home aren't going to try as hard or care as much, right? They're going to watch Netflix and, and do laundry all day. And it just doesn't prove to be true most of the time. And so these employers are imposing these complex systems onto a, a group of largely ethical people in, in out of fear of the rare bad apple, right? And it sends a really powerful message to employees, which is that we don't trust you. It also slows down their work and it, it lowers their quality of life. And so those kinds of approaches to work from home don't do any good. One more point, because I know I've been going for a little while around no, this. I love it. The, the work from home piece that I think is most important is really tied to flexibility. Flexibility is about giving people some influence over when, where, and how they work. And what we know is if if you give people just a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of control, a little bit of say 
in some aspect of their work arrangement, it supercharges commitment. And work from home is just one kind of flexibility, right? We Maybe we're just talking about giving people some influence over, when, over where their shift starts or when it starts or who they work with or how long it is or what days of the week they work. When you can give some of that power back to people, you you create more loyalty in your organization. Yeah, that's so good. I love I love how you just said leaders should work with. Hey, here's a novel thought: ask your employees for input yeah. before you yeah. create a policy. See how they're <laughs> thinking and feeling. I am curious. I mentioned the great what is the great resignation, and then it's followed by the great regret. Right. Um, you know, you mentioned employees who now they do have to come back to the office, and they're saying, "Hey, I will these costs, etc." Are you seeing that? And do you have any advice for people who may be listening to this and saying, yeah, I feel like I need more flexibility than you know I had. I don't like the direction the company's going. I want to leave. What yeah. advice do you have so people don't have great regret in transitioning? Right. So yes, I, I've, I've seen a lot of the, of the sort of the great regret. And I think it's being driven in a lot of ways by unkept promises from employers. So in the last couple of years, as workers sought more quality of life, um, and, and as a caveat here, Doug, I have actually referred to the great resignation as the great upgrade, because that's really what's happening in the labor market. Uh, people aren't resigning, they're switching jobs. And when they switch job, they're pursuing those upgrades to quality of life that we talked about. And, and we have all kinds of jobs data that tells us this is the case. And I think this is a really important distinction to make for leaders and, and employers. People aren't deciding not to work. There's not an invisible mass of people who are sitting on the sidelines all of a sudden. We have more jobs in our economy than we have people to fill them. And so there's opportunity now and people are seeking upgrades to quality of life. And so it's been the great upgrade where we see employees leaving these new jobs quickly or even boomeranging back to employers that they left in the first place, it's often driven by unkept promises. They were told, yes, you're going to get flexibility. Yes, you're going to be able to work from home a lot. Yes, we've got great bosses. Yes, we're going to invest in your professional development. Yes, we're going to keep pushing your wages higher and higher. And then they get there and the promises that were made weren't kept. And, you know, yeah, in some cases, people end up finding that the grass isn't always greener on the other side, and they go back to other places they were at before, or they go looking for another upgrade in some way. My advice for employers is keep your promises and really think about those quality of life enhancements and recognize that you have to choose an identity right now. Are you a departure organization or are you a destination workplace? And if you want to be a destination workplace, you have to understand those dimensions of ideal job and meaningful work and great boss that we just talked about. For employees who may be in roles that they're unhappy about, right? We've all maybe had the experience where we weren't in love with a job, but we didn't necessarily know the reason why. I would argue that, that you could bang your experience up against that same framework of ideal job, meaningful work, great boss, and the dimensions that we just talked about a few minutes ago to say, all right, which of these am I getting and which of these am I not getting? And for the ones that I'm not getting, does it turn out that maybe those are even more important to me than I realized? And now how do I go seek those out in another part of my company or maybe another role altogether? Yeah. I, I want to transition and talk about the great boss factor because this is yeah. huge. 
leadership podcast, and I'm sure every leader listening to this has heard the phrase, people don't leave companies, they leave people, Right. Uh, which historically I would say, <laughs> at least in my experience, has been true. Um, one, just, you know, you have three things that you mentioned under what a great boss looks like, mm-hmm. but we're responsible as leaders for ensuring that we have great organizations. What does a great boss look like and how can leaders identify whether or not they have good ones? Yeah. So we all know that there are literally dozens of things that a leader needs to do right consistently for someone to point to them and say, man, I've got a great boss. And we also know that even if we get all of those things right, it's still a really fragile relationship and it can be fleeting at times, right? You could take years to build up that great boss employee relationship and you can significantly damage it in one or two bad decisions, right? Um, and so as we looked at what what leaders need to do well consistently in order for that direct supervisor relationship to work. We kept coming back to these three ideas of trust, coaching, and advocacy. So trust is a two-way street, right? I have to grant trust and I have to earn trust. And I grant trust specifically by giving people the freedom to get to their work product their way, which may not always be my way. It's, it's trusting other people's insights, their ideas, being willing to let them try new things, being willing to let them fail. Because as a boss, when we don't grant trust, we end up becoming a micromanager. And we know that's a soul-crushingly awful experience uh, for people who have somebody right over their shoulder. Uh, earning trust is about being competent and being present and sharing credit and accepting blame and doing many of the things that we talk consistently about that that are a sort of flagship behaviors for leaders in this day and age. So that trust factor is sort of a, a secret sauce in the boss piece. The, the coaching dimension is really about a specific kind of conversation that we're having with employees consistently. Uh, too often when we talk about coaching, we think it's got about giving advice or we, you know, we picture somebody with a whistle around their neck standing on the sideline at a football game. But in terms of leadership, that's not what we mean when we say coaching. Coaching is a very specific kind of conversation. It's asking people open-ended questions in the right order to create self-actualization. To, to mine them for their insights and the creativity and their potential solutions. And so when I have a supervisor who coaches me, who invites me to share my thoughts and opinions, who challenges me, who, who uses it as a developmental tool to not just give me answers when I ask questions, but to say, well, what options do you see? That leadership behavior, that leadership skill of coaching is one of the most powerful influences of employee engagement as it shows up in the research. And then that third dimension of advocacy, if you think about what an advocate does, it's, it's someone who acts in my best interests. So as a boss, do I care not just about the tasks and duties of someone's job and whether they're complete or done well? Do I care about that person outside of work? Do I advocate not just for what they need to get at work to be successful, but do I care about their long-term career prospects? At the very least, do I know a little something about their story? Am I connecting with them in a and their humanity in a human way and not just treating them as a commodity at work? All of those things bake into the pie to, to produce a great boss. Yeah. So if those are the things that make up a great boss as leaders of the organization, we're responsible for actually training up and raising up great bosses. I'm mm-hmm. curious from, from an HR perspective and from a leadership perspective uh, from the top of the organization, what are best practices that you would say when it comes to onboarding, training and equipping uh, the leaders within our organization to actually be great bosses? 
Yeah. So there are, there are two big ideas that research tells us consistently influence the performance of leaders and then downstream influence the engagement of their teams. And a lot of this research has been driven by Gallup in recent years. Uh, they've found consistently in organizations with the highest performing levels of employee engagement. So you've got low turnover and re right, higher retention. You've got people who say this is a great place to work. Uh, people who, who, um, part with what is called discretionary effort, right? That space between doing the minimum and giving it all they've got. In organizations where we see that consistently, we see managers have two characteristics in common. The first is that they are a part of a peer group of managers where they regularly get to meet and discuss and share help and information. The second is that they demonstrate an ongoing commitment to professional development. And so this is really interesting to me from a leadership development perspective, because sometimes we think as, as employers or as companies that we need to create really sophisticated leadership development programs. And maybe we don't. Maybe all we really need to do is make sure that leaders get some time to confer with other peer leaders and to talk to each other about the challenges of being a leader and Maybe the other thing we just need to do is make sure that we are helping these leaders engage in an ongoing commitment to professional development. So, so making sure they can attend conferences, making sure that they occasionally can, can read a book about leadership or listen to a podcast like this one, right? Just making time and space for leaders to talk about what it means to be a leader and to help each other do it well. Turns out that's maybe the most effective way to do it. Maybe those are the best practices. That, that's so good. Um, I want to dive a little bit more into being a great boss and creating a great culture. You wrote another book. I just think this ties into to great bosses. Uh, and the book is called No More Team Drama, <laughs> Eliminating the Gossip Clicks and Other Crap That Damages Team. First of all, unbelievable book title. Thank uh, you. <laughs> but, but I'm super passionate about this. So yeah. gossip is rampant in our world. It's, it's crazy. It does damage teams. It damages organizations. How can, how can leaders do some of the things you mentioned, eliminating gossip and clicks? Because mm. if, if they don't do that, we're never going to thrive and have a flourishing culture, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's funny. This book was born out of work that I've been doing for years, traveling into organizations, doing, you know, like full day long leadership masterclasses and coming back a couple times and working with frontline and mid-level managers about what are you, what are you struggling with the most? What are the, the, the biggest people management challenges you face? And consistently we would get back all of these ideas about about, well, we can't just, people just don't play well together in the sandbox sometimes. And how do we, like, what do I do? What kind of conversations do I have? How do I fix that? And so we decided, all right, like, why do some teams become high-performing, close-knit, no-drama work groups, while others just get mired in debate and dysfunction and drama? And so we started doing a lot of, uh, again, research. I, I kind of talked about nerding out around the social science. I, I'm really interested in where what what leads to clicks? What leads to gossip? What are the triggers? What are the environmental factors? What are the beliefs? What are the cognitive biases? And so we, we married all of that together into this book. And what we found is that most of the time, team drama comes from people more favorably judging themselves and more harshly judging others because of some shortcuts our brains take and the stories they make up about why people do what they do. And so the book really uh, argues that there are four things teams have to work on together in order to cut down on us more favorably judging ourselves and more harshly judging others. And we call them courtesy, camaraderie, conflict, 
and cause. Now you can tell, Doug, because you just asked me about the other book, that, that we like frameworks, right? We, when, we, <laughs> when we talk about this stuff, we like to try to translate some of these complex ideas into simple concepts, right? And so courtesy is about the quality of interactions that people have. What are the expectations for how we talk to and treat each other? camaraderie is about giving people a chance to form sophisticated relationships with each other and to access each other's humanity because it turns out we judge each other less harshly when we know some things about each other. We find things in common with each other that don't have anything to do with work. Conflict is about teaching people how to avoid unhealthy patterns of conflict. Uh, you know, we, we write in the book about something called drama triangles, right? Where if I'm upset with somebody else, I actually end up going to a third party first, right? That's called a drama triangle. Uh, and, you know, th that's an unhealthy pattern of conflict. And so we, we need leaders to actually teach members of teams like, hey, when, when you're frustrated with somebody, you've you got to go talk to that person first. Uh, and then cause is really about our mission and our purpose, right? When, we, when everybody is rowing in the same direction and when you identify a mission that is so powerful and worthy of people's attention that it cuts down on the high school BS and noise that kind of creeps into work sometimes. So those four things, courtesy, camaraderie, conflict, and cause are sort of the recipe for a low drama work team. I love these frameworks. Uh, <laughs> as we start to, to wrap on the, the conversation around employalty, um, the, the third bucket that you talked about was just meaningful work. Yeah. And, and I think this is huge. Now, I work at a rescue mission. We serve the homeless. So everyone's like, wow, there's mm -hmm. so much meaning behind your work. I wish I had meaning in my work. How, how do we help people find meaning and significance in what they do? Uh, in the day-to-day, because -day. all of our jobs, no matter what the purpose of the organization yeah. is, have mundane parts of them. Yeah, I do a lot of work in healthcare, and it's easy to get romantic about healthcare too, right? We're saving yeah. lives, we're curing the sick, and um, it, there are a lot of professions where you can point to the difference your work makes in the lives of others right quick. But there are other jobs where maybe that's harder to do. I've had a lot of conversations with people who work in call centers and collections and things of that nature. I think every job in one way or another either reduces suffering or imparts joy or in some form or fashion makes a difference to somebody in a positive way. I think we as leaders, if we can shine a light on that and become better storytellers, we can actually help people find that purpose and that meaning more easily. I always give the example of the ticket taker at the movie theater right? This is, this is my dream backup job, Doug. If I just get tired of thinking at work, I might just go tear tickets at the movie theater because I feel like <laughs> it's not that hard, right? You just tear the ticket on your left, on your right. There's the restroom. Thanks for coming. But if I ran a movie theater and I had, you know, high school kids working for me, tearing tickets, I wouldn't want them there just like slouching and thinking that their work was meaningless. I would want them to believe that, that doing that really matters. And not just because we don't want people stealing free movies. And so I'd probably do something like this. If I hired a high school kid, I would say, hey, you're tearing ticket to the movie theater. And I know that probably feels meaningless, but it's really not. Who do you know who has been married the longest? And we'd probably hear maybe about their grandparents or an aunt and uncle or maybe their own parents. And I would say, I want you to go ask them to tell you about their first date. And I want you to come back and tell me about it. And when this kid came back and told me about it, I would get, probably get a lot of detail, right? And I would probably say something like, isn't it remarkable that they remember in such detail a night that happened like 40 years ago? Isn't that remarkable? Hey, guess what? 
the people walking past you every day that you're tearing tickets might be that couple. They might be on their first date and we get to be a part of that. And isn't that amazing? And then, Doug, I'd say, now, do you know anybody who has kids, say, under the age of three? And if they do, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a cousin. Okay, I want you to call them up and I want you to ask them, what would it take for you to go to the movies tomorrow? And I want you to figure out all the things that they would have to get into place to get out of the house without the kids to go see a movie, right? You said you got four kids. I got three. If I want, if my wife and I want to go see a movie, right, we're out 50, 60 bucks for a babysitter before we pull out of the driveway, <laughs> right? Yep. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. And so then I would have that kid come back and tell me, I would say, every day you're tearing tickets. You've got people walking past you who had to move heaven and earth just to be there. And so let's make this nice special for them. So you see what I'm doing, right? I'm connecting. Yeah. I'm ready to go work for you at the movie. <laughs> <laughs> the difference that we make in the lives of others and making it personal and making it emotional. This is huge. I mean, you just made it emotional for me. I, my wife and I's first date at a movie. We saw Lord of the Rings 2, I think in like 2000. That's a good one. And, uh, and yeah, date nights, we just saw Mission Impossible 700, whatever. Number right? Uh, <laughs> but hey, plug for the movie. It was incredible. But yep. um, man, that's so good. And as leaders, our job is to communicate vision and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And I think sharing stories like you just shared, that's our job. And so yep. leaders communicate vision, keep saying the same thing. I have a friend that always tells me repetition leads to retention, yeah. uh, which is so good. And personalizing um, it because that's what we just did, right? Yeah. Sometimes when yeah. we talk about, here's the difference we make in the lives of others. We cure the sick and we feed the homeless and that's true. But when you can bring that down from the many to the one, right? We yes. made a difference in James's life or we made a difference in this couple's life. It becomes even more powerful. Yeah. Well, Joe, we've spent a lot of time talking about the employers, uh, the leaders of the organization and, and what they need to do. Uh, I just want to give you free reign and I'll just leave this really, really open-ended to talk to employees. You know, we have a lot uh, of young leaders listening to this uh, who want to grow and develop. They want to be leaders one day. They want to advance. They want to do well. Uh, what advice do you have for employees and future leaders? What do they need to do in order to thrive in today's workplace? Uh, you know, if, if, you want your employer to be devoted to you, then we have to show up devoted to them. We have to care about their mission, right? We do have to care about their bottom line. We do have to bear, care about the quality of the interactions that we have with clients, with customers. And so, you know, showing up at work and just going through the motions isn't going to get us very far and it's not going to motivate our employers to create a better employee experience. What we wrote about in this book, Employalty, is really about reciprocity. Commitment is a two two-way street. I'm banging the table on all kinds of media, really employing, excuse me, imploring employers to treat people more humanely at work, to stop treating employees like a commodity, to teach leaders how to show up in such a way that they care not just about who the person is at work, but that they care about their life outside of work as well. And we need to return that commitment with a commitment of our own to, to join an organization, to give that organization a chance to, to teach us and then to, to bring our whole selves to that work and to care about the quality of our work. When that commitment truly is a two-way street, you end up having an ideal job doing meaningful work for a great boss. In general, we know that people, people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. And so if you see an employer who's trying to create a great job for you, do what you can to do a great job for them. 
So good. Well, Joe, with the time we have left, I want to dive into the lightning round. A bunch of fun questions I ask in every interview. All right. And the first one is, what is the best advice you've ever received and who gave it to you? Can I swear? <laughs> we'll I know it, it out. it's, 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 it's a, it. a PG-13. Thir- PG um, one of the first pieces of advice that I got after grad school in my first job from this crotchety old guy uh, who had been a leader for about 100 years was, don't where you eat. And he talked about for years watching young graduates like go to conferences and get drunk and do stupid things in their professional networks. And, and that always resonated with me, right? Uh, from a professional level, don't, you know, bleep where you eat. <laughs> if you could put a quote on a billboard for everyone to read, what would it say? If I could put a quote on a billboard for everyone to read... Ah, I would probably be what I just said. People generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. Mm. Uh, What books, either all time or recently, have you read that have made the greatest impact on your life? Well, my favorite leadership book, since that's the theme of this podcast, is Daniel Pink's book, Drive. Uh, the surprising truth about what motivates us. He just writes so brilliantly about a lot of that social science research on intrinsic motivation. And I think it should be required reading for leaders at all levels. Uh, you've done a lot of research. You've spent time with a lot of leaders and organizations. I'm curious, when you get to spend time with a great leader that you look up to or admire, uh, do you have a go-to question that you always ask when you get time with them? I ask for scripts and turns of phrase, right? What what scripts or turns of phrase have you found have had the biggest impact on your work? If you, if you have to have a difficult conversation with somebody, how do you say what you want to say? I've learned a lot of really interesting approaches with that one. What is it? Scripts and what? Turns of phrase. Terms of phrase. What Turns of, of phrase. Yeah. Turns of phrase. What yeah. are some of yours? Uh, um, help me understand, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and instead of a why do I just you? Just started using that. Yeah. So good. Or tell me more about that. Um, you know, I, I try to use uh, we versus you whenever possible. Yeah. I love it. Uh, what's your biggest leadership pet peeve? Biggest leadership pet peeve. I am, I am known for ranting against exit interviews, um, that exit interviews are stupid and we should stop doing them. They're a colossal waste of time and resources because if you think about it, um, (laughs) it's absurd, right? So the person has decided to leave. They've got no skin in the game anymore. They've got one foot out the door. Now we're going to ask them, hey, what do you think we should do differently around here? It's absurd. It's stupid. We should be doing stay interviews. We should be asking the people who stay those questions. Yeah. Preach. Uh, what's a, I don't know if you have an actual bucket list or not, but what's something you've done in your life that you think everyone should experience before they die? Oh, man. I think, I don't know if it's a bucket list thing, but I think everybody should have to work in retail or a restaurant or both at some point in their <laughs> lives. I did both in, in high school. It really teaches you to care for and respect people in those roles. What was your favorite retail or restaurant job that you had? I worked at, so if you know Brookstone in shopping malls, they've got all the cool gadgets and stuff. I did that, you know, during a holiday season. That was a neat place to work. (laughs) Coolest gadget in Brookstone that you've experienced? Uh, The massage chair. They had had a fancy (laughs) massage chair before you could get them in like Aprils and lobbies and things like that. That's so funny. Uh, If you could go back and have coffee with yourself at any age and you would have actually listened to yourself, what age would that be? And what would you tell that version of Joe? Oh, my first blush reaction is I would go back to myself in middle school 
And um, I was very small and I was very smart, which is a pretty brutal combination in, in those years. And middle school was awful and I got picked on a lot. And I think I would just probably encourage myself that it's going to get better. Uh, part of me, you know, now as a dad would want to teach me to fight back and probably say some of the things that even my parents were saying at the same time. I don't know that I was able to hear it, um, but I would have, I would tell myself it, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And at the end of your life, one day looking back, what do you want to be remembered for? And what do you want your legacy to be? Well, as a, as a father and as a, a husband and as someone who moves through this world with compassion and kindness and a giving spirit to others would, would probably be the most important. Um, second to that, maybe something about improving work, right? Making work work for all. I think everybody deserves to be treated with worth and to have a job that they love. And let's figure out how to do that together. Yeah. And you're giving your life to that now. And so for those listening, if people connected with you, what are some ways people could connect you with you? How can they find you and how can they work with you? Oh, thank you for asking, man. Uh, I'm at joemull.com, J-O-E-M-U-L-L.com. Or if it's easier to remember, you can go to bossbetternow.com uh, and you'll find our podcasts and books and, and uh, all sorts of other materials. Awesome. And anything you want to talk about, anything else you want to say to leaders before we hop off? Just keep caring about people and just giving the time and effort into you know one-on-one -on -one learning about people and building that relationship. Well, Joe, thanks for the interview. Thanks for the conversation and all that you do to create great workplaces and keep making a difference, my friend. Oh, thank you, Doug. This was a blast. Thanks for having me. Well, Leader, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Joe. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can find ways to connect with him and links to everything that we discussed in the show notes at l3leadership.org forward slash 388. And as always, Leader, I want to challenge you that if you want to 10x your growth this year, then you need to either launch or join an L3 Leadership Mastermind Group. Mastermind groups are simply groups of 6 to 12 leaders that meet together on a consistent basis for at least one year in order to help each other grow, hold each other accountable, and to do life together. For me personally, Mastermind groups have been the greatest source of growth in my life over the last eight years. And so if you are interested in launching or joining a group, go to l3leadership.org forward slash masterminds or email me at dougsmith at l3leadership.org. And as always, I like to end every episode with a quote, and I'll quote Henry Cloud today who said this. He said, a successful person is not offended or afraid of their faults. They see them as opportunities to grow. This is difficult and requires humility, but it brings problems to the surface that can actually be solved. So much wisdom in that. Well, Leader, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Know that my wife, Laura, and I love you. We believe in you, and I say it every episode, but don't quit. Keep leading. The world desperately needs your leadership. We'll talk to you next episode.